Man, it's so good uh, to be with you here this morning, and um, we're going to address a topic uh, today that uh, I hope will hit close to home for you, I think in, in some way uh, or another it should, and it's this idea of, uh, have you ever been in a position where you felt like somebody wasn't appreciating you uh, for who you were, uh, that they, they were looking at you and they were kind of putting a label on you or an identity or, or they were judging you based on who you used to be, but they weren't looking at you for who you were in that moment. And there's a, there's a great frustration when that happens because, um, because you want to be accepted for who you are, not, not your past mistakes and failures, but you want to be uh, given a clean slate. We all want that, right? Like each day you want to walk into your relationships and your place of business, wherever you go, uh, you want to start with a clean slate. And sometimes uh, we want that for ourselves, but we're unwilling to give that to somebody else. Sometimes we withhold that uh, from people. And uh, it's, it's a very natural thing, and it's, an, and it's an incredible challenge in the church, right? Because every week when we come, uh, the continual desire is to come to God's Word and allow it to transform and to change our heart. And so every week we say, what's the truth here, and how can I apply that to my life so that I go out and I live in a different way? How does my relationship with Jesus change the way that I live each and every day? The problem is, is that you go out and you field test that, in a home environment with people who are very accustomed. They know exactly who you are. They know your flaws and your shortcomings. They know every mistake you've made in the past. Uh, they know, uh, you know, your, your lack of follow-through, your lack of consistency, uh, your good intentions with, uh, with bad results, right? And so when you take that into the home, that's one of the hardest places uh, for somebody to accept. You walk out and you're mad, like, man, the sermon today just really spoke to me. Like, God is changing something in, in my heart. And the people you live with are very likely to be like, oh, okay, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see if this makes it past lunchtime, right? So, uh, so, so there's this constant struggle as someone who's coming to God's Word and desiring to be changed, to believe it about yourself, and also to see the people around you embrace and believe not who you were, but who you are in that moment. And so there's a, there's a real clear application today as we come and we look at an, a situation where Jesus was being judged on who they thought he was. They were placing a false label and a false identity upon him, and it affected their ability to receive what Jesus wanted to give to them. And we're going to find this in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, so you can turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Uh, one of the central things that we're going to talk about today is that we really believe uh, that this is God's word given to us, that this is the authority in our life. So uh, past tradition and value and practices and things that have been done are all, uh, they weigh into the equation, but ultimately uh, everything has to square up against this, that this is the ultimate truth that we want to run up against. And, and so as we come to Scripture, we view this as truth and we try to reorient our life towards the truth that we find here. Matthew 13, verse 53 says this, uh, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And so let's pause there for a minute. Um, I know that every week when I get up to preach, that's what you guys are thinking, right? You're like, where did this man get these, this wisdom and these mighty works? Right? Like you're amazed. This is too much laughter, okay? Too much. Back it down a little bit. Um, if you guys watch reality TV, anybody in here watch reality TV shows? Come on, you can admit it. Wow, four people. That's incredible. That says something about our church, but I don't know. what. Um, any reality TV show you watch, or not any, but a lot of them uh, of the, the game show variety end up leading towards a hometown uh, appearance, right? Like as you, as you advance in the competition and you get down to the final couple, 
uh, when you get down to the last four or five or whatever, they like to go to their hometown and kind of bring this newfound celebrity and everything that's going on into their hometown setting to see how people kind of react and, and respond to them. And so American Idol is one show that does this like uh, consistently and pretty famously. And so, you know, what happens? Somebody, a no-name, nobody knew who they were, whatever, they go off, they sing in American Idol, they start getting votes, they got all this stuff. All of a sudden, they come home to their high school and the people are like, oh, we love, here's your locker you used to use. And the principal, who they maybe didn't get along with or didn't even know him, was like, oh, you were my favorite student. And the mayor gives them a key to the city, even though they'd never met before, right? So there's, uh, and then they go to the local football stadium and they have this big concert and it's sold out and people are crying when like you know two months ago they were playing at the local Starbucks and there was nobody in there or or at Wegmans we went to Wegmans last night there was this poor lonely guy in there playing guitar and singing and he would finish each song and wait just for a second to see if anybody was going to clap and then he'd like go and play right that's where they were and now all of a sudden they're back and now they've got celebrity and fame attached to them so now it's like they're a big deal the the hometown son or the hometown daughter comes home and makes proud and people love them it's so awesome And so that might be what we're expecting here when Jesus comes to his hometown. But in fact, what we find is something very different. Their response was not, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It's, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, right? Verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we want to come to your word and we want to grow and we want to learn from it. Um, We want to learn about you. uh, But we also want to know you. Not just facts about you, but we want to know you personally. We want to look at at this interaction that Jesus had with his hometown, and we want it to impact the way that we live our lives. Uh, We want to look at Jesus as our ultimate example, but not just as our ultimate example, not just as someone to emulate and to follow, but as the one who did perfectly what we can't do and the one to whom we, uh, we come for salvation because we know that we can't do it ourselves. Uh, Shape and instruct us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, whenever we come to a scripture passage, the, the goal of a pastor, if, if we're doing our job right, is to, to identify what's the big point that this scripture passage is trying to communicate, and then how do we apply it to our lives, right? So the big point, uh, as I would identify it here, is that, that Jesus came to his hometown, and they re- failed to receive the blessing that Jesus wanted to give to them because of their unbelief. Jesus came to a certain group of people. He desired to, to speak wisdom into their lives, to bring healing and, and to work wonders. And because of their unbelief, they were unable to receive what he wanted to freely offer to them. That's what we see happening here. And so you can see there's a real parallel uh, that can take place in our life. And that's ultimately what we're driving at this morning. And we're going to look at how they got two things wrong. They got his identity wrong. They put the wrong label on Jesus. They misunderstood who he was. And secondly, they rejected the message because of the messenger. They couldn't look at the message in and of itself because of the one who was delivering it, because Jesus was from their hometown. They thought they knew who he was. They didn't even listen to the message that he delivered. They just focused on the messenger. And so we're going to look at those two things. But before we dive into that, I want to look at a little bit of the interesting context that's in here, because I recognize that uh, we have a wide variety of people that are coming from different backgrounds here in the room. And so there might be some parts of this passage that are really... uh, 
challenging for you. Like, for example, uh, what? Jesus had brothers and sisters? Uh, I wasn't taught that growing up. I, I was taught, in fact, that he explicitly didn't have that. And so, uh, so let's just take a moment uh, to kind of pull that apart and understand it. And even before that, I want to give you a little bit of the broader context of the timeline of what's going on here. If you flip just one page over, or it might be on the same page, depending on how small your font is in your Bible, but at the end of chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, the very last section uh, tells us that Jesus had been going. He had been having some arguments and disagreements with the Pharisees. He had been preaching some, some really hard things, and he was in the middle of preaching, and his family comes to him. Look what it says in Matthew 12, verse 46. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Jesus said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus used this opportunity to kind of make a point uh, that, hey, there is family relationship, but, but my true mother and brothers and sisters, even greater than family bonds, are the, is the bond of, of those that are children of the Father, those that do the will of Jesus are united in this powerful way that even extends beyond the bond of a mother and a father and a, a brother and a sister, uh, that that's the depth of it. So he, he used it as a teaching moment, but we also sense that there's this, this kind of tension going on here, right? Like the family didn't come and sit down and listen to what Jesus is saying. They weren't inside with the people listening to him. They were outside interrupting him and basically saying, hey, Jesus, I know you're talking to somebody, but can you come out here? We need to talk to you, right? So we don't know what they wanted to say to him. We don't know why they came after him. We don't know why they approached him. But, um, but we can kind of guess from context that maybe there was some sort of occasion that called for him to come back to his hometown. Because what we see is that uh, that same day, at the beginning of ch- chapter 13, it tells us that Jesus went out of the house. He sat by the side of the sea and great crowds, crowds <laughs> slow down, Ezra, right? Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. So that very same day, his family had come and tried to call him out, and he said, hey, the people that do the will of my father and my brothers and sisters. Then he went, and he told all these parables that we've been studying for the past few weeks. And then when that ended, then he went home. So he said, hey, I hear what you say. I hear you need me to come. I got to do the will of my father, but, but I'm coming. So, so Jesus comes home to Nazareth, and so there's already a little bit of tension in the air at this point. And and so now we come into this whole idea of what's, what's the story with Jesus' siblings, right? Um, and so uh, I, I did a lot of reading on this. I thought I kind of had my head wrapped around it, and I actually learned a lot uh, this week. But if you come with a plain reading of Scripture, you would look at this and say, okay, this is uh, uh, the word that's used here would most likely indicate brothers and sisters. And so if you have no other reason for reading it a different way, you would come and say, okay, this is, uh, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin, right? That Mary was a virgin, so he was the, the firstborn. And we're told that Joseph did not know her as her husband until after Jesus was born. He said until her, her son was born. So we would assume that Jesus was born, and then afterwards Mary and Joseph entered into a normal marital relationship, and they bore children and had sons and uh, at least two daughters, maybe more. We don't know. They didn't say. And, uh, and that that would be the offspring. That would be the most natural reading of this passage. Uh, but... Uh, Early into church history, uh, there, there developed this tradition, and it's not, you won't find a scripture verse that says it, but there was this tradition of understanding Mary not only as a virgin uh, who gave birth, but that she continued to be a virgin for the remainder of her life uh, in some sort of vow of celibacy, and um, I can't get behind why people would prefer to view her that way, um, but the point that I'm driving at is if you come with that sort of thing, if you say, oh, no, Mary was a virgin for her whole life, so it couldn't have been his real brothers, then you start to dig into the word and you say, okay, the word is Adelphoi, 
you guys live here in Philadelphia, so you understand that Philadelphia is what? The city of what? Brotherly love, right? At least that's, <laughs> that's our name, right? We're going to stick with it. Uh, <laughs> right? So it's this, this idea of, of, of brothers. So it's most naturally brothers, as in blood brothers, but it could, use, uh, uh, could be used in a term that it sometimes was used in other close relatives. And so if you come in with that mindset of, no, she was always a virgin, then you can say, all right, maybe it was Jesus' cousins. Uh, or you would say maybe uh, Joseph was married before he met Mary, and he had all these children from another marriage, and then that lady died and was a widow, and then he married Mary, and Mary had. So there's ways that you can kind of, if you're prone towards doing that, you could work around to try and get there. Um, and I don't uh, mean to, to cast judgment. In fact, what I, my desire here would be to, to say to you, if you're inclined to believe that, that can, that can be an okay view. It doesn't contradict Scripture, and, and if you land there, that's all right. But the question that I would want to ask is, why is it so essential that Mary remained a virgin for her entire life? Why is that really important? Uh, and if it's really important because uh, you're grouping Mary with Jesus as our co-redeemer, as our co-savior, as our co-mediator, uh, then theologically that's a big problem uh, because Jesus is in his own category. <laughs> fully God, fully man, uh, it's through faith in Christ alone that we're saved, uh, that he is our mediator between us and the Father, uh, that our salvation is through Christ alone. And so that's where Jesus resides. Mary resides over here as a very godly woman, one uh, to be honored and admired like any great hero in Scripture, a, a woman of faith, a woman of obedience. Uh, but just like all of us, uh, she was a sinner who needed salvation uh, by grace, by faith in her son, Jesus Christ. And so, so she's in the boat here with us. Jesus is over here by himself. And if you agree with that and you believe that according to Scripture, and you still want to hold to the idea that Mary was an ever-virgin, that's okay. We can disagree on that. We can do some word studies. We can dig into the history and the, and the logic and the reasons. Um, and, and we can agree to disagree on that. That's not a salvation issue. That's not something that should divide us as Christians. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I found is that uh, we tend to connect this with the Catholic Church. But even after the Protestant Reformation, when the Protestant churches, I know I just lost some people. You're just like, oh. Right? <laughs> Let me give you like five seconds of something that's interesting to me, right? <laughs> So when Martin Luther got frustrated with the Catholic Church and listed off all these things that he thought was wrong with it, uh, he broke off from the Catholic Church, and that was the Protestant Reformation. All the Protestant churches uh, came out of that. So Methodist and Lutheran and Baptist and Assemblies of God, like all this stuff is part of that branch. And the original reformers that broke off from the Catholic Church, that wasn't one of the things that they rejected. And so, uh, so guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther held on to this idea that, that Mary remained a virgin for her whole life. And so... Um, so there's, there's room for some different interpretation of the, the Scripture itself as long as theologically we land in the right place where Jesus is our one mediator, our one redeemer, uh, and we can all come together as brothers and sisters on that. So, all right, I'm going to step away from that now. <laughs> Couch that in your mind. I read a lot of great articles this week. If you want to know more about it, shoot me an email and I'll send them to you. Um, so with that in mind, regardless of their, their exact relationship, what they were doing is they were using them, and this is one of the things that argues for a brother, right? Why would they say, like, is this really Jesus? We know his distant cousins. We know that guy, right? No, no they're saying, no. Could this be the Jesus that his dad was a carpenter and his mom was Mary and, and she got pregnant under questionable circumstances, right? And, uh, and, and we've seen how very normal and ordinary his family is, his brothers and sisters. They're right here. How could this guy be claiming to be so special? And they were offended by that. So there's two things, as I pointed out earlier, there's two things. They missed the message because the messenger, let's begin there. It says that they saw his wisdom. They were astonished 
at, at what he spoke to them. He, he preached this incredible message. But instead of saying, wow, we need to take that to heart, they said, wow, how could he possibly know something like that? And they immediately moved past the message to attack the messenger. Now, we see this happen constantly in the news right now because we're in an election cycle, right? And so we would love for an election to be about who has the best ideas, who has the best plans, who has the best programs that are realistic that are going to move our country forward. But what it really turns into is a character attack, right? And so we see this in the debates. The, the, the moderators do their best to ask a question about an issue, like, what's your plan for resolving blah, blah, blah? And they say, well, before I get to that, I just want to point out <laughs> that my opponent had one view on this 13 years ago, but now he has changed his view, and then he flip-flopped back, right? And so it becomes a character attack. It becomes a character issue, and, and I think character is important in a, in a political candidate. Um, but sometimes we miss the message because the messenger. How many times have you guys, uh, have you had your spouse tell you something over and again, or your parent tell you something over and again, and you're like, nah, 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 and then your friend comes and tells you the exact same thing, and you're like, wow, that's a good idea. Yeah, you're on to something there, right? For some reason, we just can't receive it from, from the messenger because we're like, well, you don't even do that yourself. You can't tell me to do that, right? This whole practice what you preach thing comes in. You're not willing to, hey, unless you've walked a mile and you've demonstrated that, I don't want to hear that from you. And what I would say to you is that uh, this is a natural thing, and this is what the people of Nazareth fell into. We see this in our world today, right, with a lot of uh, young people. They say, I don't want to be a Christian because my parents were Christian. I, I, I'm not interested. They were hypocrites. Uh, it didn't do it for them, so I don't want it. So, so they don't evaluate Christianity on its own merits. They don't, look at, uh, they don't look at the worldview that Jesus presents. They don't help see how it understands and explains everything. They just say, based on uh, the fact that they did it, I now don't want to do it, right? This is not a wise way to live. <laughs> we need to engage with ideas in and of themselves and on their own merits and not throughout the message because of the messenger. As a pastor, I do this. I get a lot of feedback, not only on sermons, but on uh, policies in the church, on the way that we do different things, whatever. And, and I've had to learn over time to receive the message regardless of the, the way in which it's delivered, right? So sometimes somebody might come up and say something at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong attitude, but I've got to put all that aside and say, is, is there an element of what they're saying that's true? <laughs> do I need to act on this, not because of how they delivered it? And, and do I need to not respond in a negative way because I didn't like the way they said it? I didn't like their tone. But can I be objective enough to stand back and be like, hey, you know what? Strip all that away. They're right. This needs to change, right? That takes humility and it takes wisdom. And I can't tell you, I can't promise you that I'm always there. So be careful. If you come, <laughs> you come talk to me today, uh, you know, who does, right? But I'm striving for that because I recognize that that's the right way. If the people of Nazareth could have put aside their preconceptions and their ideas and they could have just received what Jesus said, how blessed would they have been? How much of a blessing would they have received? How incredible. How much do you think Jesus wanted to pour out a blessing on his hometown, the people that he was, he was closest to growing up, the people who he knew probably more personally uh, than, than a lot of the other people that he connected with? And so he would have loved to have done that, but they weren't humble enough to receive it. And so I encourage you this morning, is there an area in your life where God's convicting you like, hey, I'm, I'm so stuck in my ways, I'm so prideful that I'm not willing to receive truth when it comes to me from the wrong source. If I'm assembling furniture later today and my daughter tells me how to do it, I don't stiff arm and say, yeah, get out of here, go play, right? I say, oh, wow, she might be right about that, right? So I've got, I've got practical application. I hope you guys can find one for yourself. The second thing was related to Jesus' identity. Uh, Nazareth just got his identity wrong, right? 
They said, isn't that the carpenter's son? When they should have said, wow, could this be the son of God? Right? They, they put the identity on him that they wanted him to have rather than receiving the identity that he was communicating to them. He said, this is who I really am if you're, really, you're willing to receive it. And they said, uh, no, we know who you are. We've already got that figured out. Now, here's the thing. Did, did this crush Jesus? <laughs> did he give up? He'd be like, you're right. I'm just a carpenter's son. I'm going to go pound some nails, right? <laughs> but we do this in our lives, right? We, we get criticism from the world. The world puts a label on us, and we receive it. Yeah, I guess I'm a loser. Uh, I guess I failed. I'm a, I'm a failure. I guess, uh, you know, I guess I'm, uh, I guess I'm not smart. Uh, I, guess, I guess I'll never be, you know, my, I was up for promotion, but the boss gave it to somebody else, so I guess I'm just not good enough, right? We, we do this all the time. And so either that or we're so hungry for that affirmation from the world that we spend all of our energy in our life pursuing it. I just got to work and work and work and work until that person validates me, right? And you guys know how hard this can be that sometimes... Uh, if it's, especially if it's a family member, you could do everything. You could literally pour your life out, and they will never give you the validation that you desire. Whereas when we come to the Father, when we come to God, he says, you start to say, hey, God, listen to what I did. And he's like, oh, before you even get started, you're my child, and I love you because I created you. And I love you because I am love. And if you'll receive the free gift of salvation that I offer to you, I will adopt you as my son, my daughter. I will place righteousness upon you. I'll view you as blameless. No one will be able to bring a charge against you. And you don't have to earn it. I'm just going to give it to you, right? That's the one that you want to go pursuing validation from. (laughs) He's the one uh, that you want to go to because he's going to give you a validation that no one else can strip away. And so where are we looking for our validation? Where are we looking for our identity? And then here's the other piece of it. Once we have it, once we're secure in it, once we know what it is, how do we deal with that? In the home, when, when someone is, is not ready to accept us for who we've become. Well, the example that Jesus gives us, Jesus maintained his course of ministry, right? He said, hey, I'm, I know who I am. I know what I'm called to do. I'm going to set, uh, set my face towards the prize, and I'm going to continue forward. And I hope that you will come to accept me as, as I am. Looking at the flip side of it, how do you deal with somebody who's, who's expressing a desire to change and is, is demonstrating some evidence of change? within the home, one of the greatest things that you can do is encourage them and believe in them, right? Rather than saying like, oh, no, 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 this is just a phase. You're going to grow out of this. I've seen you do this before. I've seen you make New Year's. How, how are you guys doing on your New Year's resolutions? <laughs> are they, how are they coming, right? <laughs> can you even remember what it was? That's, that's one of the questions. Um, Michael Scott made a resolution to floss. Do you guys remember the office? <laughs> He's like, I made a resolution to floss, so I knocked that out January 1st. I'm good. <laughs> so, random thought. But they come and go, right? You make a resolution, it disappears, and your family members are the ones that get to see it, right? They know. If I'm up here preaching and I don't go home and practice it, Trina's going to be the one who's closest to it. She's going to know, right? And so, so the question is, how can you create a home environment where you don't say, oh, no, I, no. or... Alternatively, oh, that's great you feel that way now, but where was this two years ago when I really needed it? I needed you to be like this back then. You're not helping me now. I needed you to be like that then. Or you get in an argument and you say, yeah, 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 that's great, but five years ago you did this, and I can't get past that. Are you willing to give the people in your life the, the, 
the gift of a daily clean slate. To kind of say to him, hey, I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect either. But if you're willing to pursue God with me today, let's, uh, as it says in Corinthians, right? Like, love keeps no record of wrong. Let's forget the past if you're willing to change. Now, this doesn't uh, excuse enabling. <laughs> this doesn't excuse, like, if somebody's abusive to you and you just keep letting them do it and keep letting them do it, right? This is not that. But this is a recognition of, hey, this person is claiming to be something different. This person is demonstrating uh, that they desire to change, and I'm going to come alongside, and I'm going to believe the best in them. I'm going to believe that they are who they desire to be and who God has made them to be. Are you willing to, to love the people in your life that way? If Nazareth had been willing to say, hey, Jesus, we know where you came from. We know the background, but there's something different about you. And we're going to take you on your word for who you say you are today, and we're going to put our faith in that. Man, how different would this story have been? If the nation of Israel had looked at their son, Jesus, and said, man, our Messiah is here. We're going we're gonna to put our faith. What, what would it look like? Are you guys familiar with the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Right? The more close you are, the more familiar you are with something, the more you're prone to dislike it. And so you might look at this passage today and you might say, okay, well, that's great, uh, but Jesus didn't grow up in my hometown. And uh, he never came and spoke, and I never rejected him. And so I don't really see how this applies to my heart. Uh, the thing that we've got to come to grips with is, is for I would venture to say that probably for everyone in this room, you did grow up with Jesus. You grew up with some understanding or knowledge of Jesus, right? From a, from a TV show or a Sunday school or what the kids told you in the playground or, uh, you know, from reading the Bible, whatever. And so each one of us has some sort of picture of who Jesus is in our mind. When I say Jesus, there's nobody in here who's like, Who? Wait, what? <laughs> Rewind the tape, right? We all have an image, an imperfect image of who Jesus is in our mind that's been built over time that as we learn about him, we kind of construct this idea of who we think he is. And now the question is, when we come to a really hard passage in Scripture that contradicts what we believe about Jesus, do we try and manipulate the text or, or rationalize it away or ignore it so that it do, we don't have to change who we think he is? Or do we allow Scripture to change our perception so that we can get to know Jesus better, so that we can understand him more? Are we willing to do that? Like Brian preached last week, a really hard passage about, uh, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a, a fisherman taking a net through the sea, and he gathers up all these fish, and then he pulls it out on land, and he says, bad, good, right? There's a sortation. There's some who will not be received into the kingdom. And if our vision of Jesus is this glowing, smiling-faced man holding a lamb with a halo over his head, we might say, man, I can't receive that. I can't receive that Jesus would ever toss uh, any fish away. And so instead of allowing Scripture to, to help us to understand Jesus better, we try and manipulate or change Scripture, and we hold on to this idol, this false God that we've created in our mind of this guy named Jesus who doesn't resemble the real Jesus. And that's what we call some who would claim to be Christians to say, oh, I don't believe in hell. I don't think there is a hell. I don't think a, a loving God would ever send anyone to hell. I don't think a loving God would send his son to die on a cross. That just seems gruesome and wrong. And so I reject the atonement. I reject hell. But I'm still a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Right? You can't, you can't do that. You've created a false God at that point. And so what do we do when our vision of Jesus is different than what we see in Scripture? We've got to change our vision of Jesus. If, on the other hand, you have a vision of, of God as a really wrathful and vengeful uh, judge who's ready to come on the next rolling cloud and throw down lightning bolts and strike people down, then when you read a passage like the woman who was caught in adultery that was surrounded by the crowd and Jesus said, let the one without sin cast the first stone, we're going to get angry at that part. We say, no, Jesus, how could you reject 
how could you show mercy in that moment? You need to be the judge. Or like the elder brother in the prodigal son story, we're going to say, you, you accepted them back in, right? So we need to change our picture of Jesus continually as we read Scripture. That's what it does. It refreshes in our mind who Jesus is, and then we follow him truly. It changes our perspective. Let me show you an alternative an alternative scenario. It comes at the end of chapter 14. Next week, we're going to jump into the beginning of chapter 14, but, but skipping ahead to the very end of it, there's a similar account with a very different result. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 34, it says this, when they, this is Jesus and the disciples, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. How different. There's no recording of prior to this, Jesus going and teaching or preaching in Genesaret. They had just heard a rumor about this, this mighty healer, this, this one who might be the Messiah, the Son of God. And when he landed in their soil, they were so excited, and they, they placed their faith in the little bit that they knew of him, that they gathered everyone they knew, and they said, come, like, just touch the hem of his garment. I don't know if that is good theology or not, but just touch the hem of his garment, and, and you'll be healed. And they were healed. Jesus said it takes the faith, the grain of a mustard seed, the faith of a child to enter into the kingdom. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I haven't even read the whole Bible yet. I don't even know what he was talking about. I don't know who Martin Luther is. I don't know what the Reformation was. You don't have to know any of that. (laughs) What's required for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. In the real Jesus, as much as you know him, right? So if you believe that Jesus was the son of God who came and lived a sinless life and died for your sins... And that because he died and rose from the grave and defeated sin and death, that you can receive forgiveness and eternal life. If you put your faith in that, that promise that he's offered to you, you can receive salvation today. It's simply that. Now, if you've really truly done that, of course you're going to want to get to know the one who saved you, right? You're going to have a desire to do that. But the salvation comes simply in placing your faith. Like the people of Genesaret, they said, I've heard about Jesus. I heard that he can heal me. And I'm going to go and I'm going to grab the hem of his garment. And that's all we're called to do. Will you pray with me? Father, I recognize we come from a lot of different places here today. And uh, sadly, some who are the most close to you, who've obtained the most knowledge of you, may be the ones that are furthest away this morning. Because familiarity has bred contempt that we've created a false image of who you are and we're not allowing the your word to shape our heart anymore. We've become hardened. And if that's the case, God, I pray that we would be softened. If this is the 600th time we've heard the gospel, Lord, I would pray that this would be the time that it would penetrate into our heart and we would receive it in a way as if we had never heard it before and that we would come laying our our record of good at your feet, recognizing it as rubbish, and just come and simply say, I, I believe that you offer salvation freely, and I, I, I ask you for that gift. Father, if there are those here who, who have never heard of the salvation and the forgiveness that's offered through the name of Jesus, and, and they're here today, I pray, Father, that today would be the day of their salvation. That from what they've heard today, it's sufficient to place their faith in you and receive forgiveness and everlasting life, and I pray that they would grab a hold of that opportunity today as your Holy Spirit leads them. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.